Say happy Mother's Day, all right? Happy, happy, happy Mother's Day to you. Um, man, glad that you're here, all right? So here's, here's what we're in. We're in a, a series about uh, how to do stuff, right? And we took some of the top, uh, top questions that people have from, okay, how do I know God's will? To how do I defeat temptation? To how do I even understand my Bible? Man, it's like 60, oh no, that's next week, all right? But today is really how do you, how do you make a difference, all right? How do I make a difference? And uh, this week being Mother's Day, also about... 13 months ago, uh, for us, you know, in, in our family, 13 months ago kind of marked uh, when my mom passed, all right? So my mom passed away in Wichita Falls, uh, Texas uh, in, uh, I guess, late March of last year. And so uh, you can tell that's taken a while. I still had those little golden frosted tips. So that was a little bit, a little bit of time ago. Um, but if you've ever been through that, what happens is it's kind of an interesting you know, when you're on that side of it, because for so long I was on the other side of it, you know, officiating and all that. So we're on the other side of it. It's, it's an interesting deal. Um, but what stood out, and as I reflected on this week, was, you know, she lived in Wichita Falls for 38 years, all right? We didn't move there until, um, I mean, I was almost out of high school, that kind of stuff. So I didn't really grow up there, so to speak, uh, like my younger brothers did and like she did. She chose to stay there even after, you know, being an unexpected widow shortly after we, really six months after we moved there. So she put her home there 38 years, but two things happened. One is visitation and the other one is the funeral. So uh, again, visitation is usually the night before. That's where it was for us. It was the night before at uh, the funeral home, and then the next day was at a church, uh, was actually the funeral. But what stuck out in my mind as we sat there, me and my four brothers and our wives, is these people just came up out of the, I mean, I didn't know most of them, but just lined up to talk about the impact that my mom had made on their life. And it wasn't surprising as, as much as it was encouraging. I mean, they would come up and all different people of all different walks of life. I mean, some of them were friends that I hadn't seen in a long, long time that I knew that were kind of friends of my mom and dad at the time. And they're like, this is what your mom did and your mom impacted me this way. And other times people would come up that were, let's say, co- you know, co-workers at the bank that she worked at. It's like, this is my mom. Your mom taught me how to treat people, even, even if they weren't super lovable or even super nice. The way that I saw your mom treat people of all different walks of life, that taught me how to do that. And I was like, that's awesome. And then you'd have people that were like her friends come up and share a little secret. And then you would have actually customers that would come up and say, your mom treated me this way when nobody else would. And then of course, all the different stories, but then the nieces and the nephews, they'd get on social media and they would talk about, you know, the nieces were like, you know what, granny Claire, that's what they called her. Granny Claire. She taught me how to be a lady. She taught me how to hold myself. She taught me to expect great things from whoever it is, you know, that God would put me and have as a, as a life partner with. And what should I expect from a husband? And then the nephews would come along and they'd say, you know what? Granny Claire taught me this. She taught me how to behave. She taught me how to be a gentleman. She taught me all this stuff. And as I kind of reflected on that and thought about Mother's Day and thought about the text we're going to look at today, uh, I had to eventually, I got to the point when thinking about all these stories that people told about her, I eventually had to get around and was asking the question, it's like, what kind of stories are people going to tell about me when that's my time? What kind of stories are people going to tell about you when it's your time? What kind of stories are they going to make to say, you know what, this person, Bill, Susie, this is the impact they made on my life. Because bottom line, you don't know how long that's going to be. Like I got a clock right here in front of me and what it is, is a countdown clock. And, and it, when it gets down to about three minutes, it'll go from the white 
numbers to the red numbers, all right? So what that's telling me is like, you know, land the plane, land the plane, all right? So you got three minutes to land the plane. That's a countdown clock. That means absolutely nothing to me. But in your life, in your real life, in your real life, you do have a countdown clock. The problem is you and I don't know when that is. And so what Moses actually tells us in a psalm, Psalm 90, verse 12, he says, teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts to learn wisdom. Martin Luther, the German reformer down the road, he translated into German, he said, Lord, teach us to think about our death so that we may learn how to live our lives. That's a great, that's a great, that's the thought he's trying to get across. Now, contrary to popular opinion and in our culture, it's often been misstated that the millennial generation is the generation that believes in making a difference with their life more so than all other generations combined. The millennials are typically 18 to 35, 20 to 37, and what they've seen is, is like, you know, their characteristics of that generation is, I don't want to just a, I don't want to just a paycheck, I don't want a purpose in my job, and that's admirable, and that's good, and that definitely is part of that millennial generation. But when you peel back any generation at all, boomers, busters, millennials, Xers, all of them, when you really peel it back, there's not any generation that's like, you know what, I don't care about making a difference. I don't care about not having a purpose. I just want, just give me a paycheck and put me in the coffin. That's all. Nobody thinks that way. Every survey done of everyone is like, you know what, I want my life to make a mark. I want to make a difference. I want to actually change something while I'm here. I want to make an impact. So today, what we're going to look at is I want to give you a few principles that you see in a, a, a person who made an enormous difference, even on your life, whether you know it or not, 2,000 years later. And it's a guy by the name of the Apostle Paul. All right, with he and Peter, Paul and Peter were actually the early leaders of the largest religious movement in the history of mankind. When you look at the Apostle Paul, there's so many things about him. He's the human author of almost half of the New Testament. He had a phenomenal education. It would be the equivalent of a Rhodes Scholar today. Author, evangelist, planted churches across Asia Minor, fluent in a number of different languages. And what we get is we get an insight not that long before he's going to be martyred for his faith, and he talks to actually some other leaders in the church. And it's a very, it's a unique passage. It's actually the only place in the book of Acts, it's the only extended speech or sermon or talk that is not given to unbelievers, but it's given to believers in the book of Acts. And so if let's just say 80% of us in here are saying, you know what, I'm a follower of Christ, this is a unique part of the scripture to say, you know what? The Holy Spirit wants us to understand how our lives can make a difference wherever you are. Now you might, you're not, you're not gifted. You're not or put the same way. You might not write or preach or plant churches like the apostle Paul, but make no mistake. You can make a phenomenal difference where you are. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is. You can make a big difference. The question is how, what does that look like? And what trajectory do I have to change? I'll be honest. There's probably a it's probably been five or six years since a particular text was as sobering for me as this text is. This is the text that although there was nothing in here that was like, oh, you've got to radically change everything that you're about. There were certainly a few adjustments and certainly a number of clarifications that when I looked at this, I'm like, man, I've got to be about this for my life. And so uh, what sociologists and some theologians concur with, and that is that there's five or six moments in your life 
There's not a hundred, there's like five or six moments in your life where circumstances come together in your life, certain things come together, but there's five or six particular points in your life where you make a decision, you make a commitment, and that ends up saying, that puts a stamp on what your life is gonna be about. And what my prayer is and what our hope is is that over the next about 30 minutes or so as we work through this text, you would be able to identify, it's like this is one of those five or six times. This is what my life has to be about. And so Acts chapter 20 is where we're going to be, and I'm going to, I'm going to read it. I would say one point just to, for clarification. The Apostle Paul is talking to church leaders at a church he spent the most time at. He spent the most time at a church named, uh, a town named Ephesus, and he went there and he was pastoring there. He planted it. He, he had a lot of life with them, but now he's on his way to Jerusalem. He's going to be martyred there. He gets close to him, and he, had, he doesn't have time to go over to the church. But what he does is the church leaders, you'll see them, they're called elders here. Elder, bishop, pastor, shepherd. Those are used interchangeably in the scriptures. He says, come over here. I want to talk with you. And he gives a, basically a farewell speech to these other pastors, these leaders, about what his life was about, what it is going to be about, and what he hopes his life stood for. And we're going to then take the principles from it. So Acts 20. Let me read starting in verse 18. And when they came to him, they are the Ephesian elders, him is the apostle Paul. When they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. So there's a little bit of a track record with them. It wasn't like they were together a week. It wasn't like somebody traveling evangelist. This guy was with them for a long time. Serving the Lord with all humility, we'll come back to that, and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable for your good and teaching you in public and from house to house. A couple of more and we'll do our first principle. Testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So again, he's bringing it back, bringing it back, bringing it back to the gospel. And now behold, I am going to Jerusalem. Okay, he's going to die in Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Okay, so let's take a grid. And what I want you to do today, just in the, you know, right there in your little seat with you and God, just think, what is the grid that I'm going to examine what kind of impact my life is going to make. Because it doesn't matter if you're, if you're a homemaker, if you're an accountant, if you're a plumber, if you're a policeman, whatever. These are some things that are interchangeable. If I'm a Christ follower, here's a grid in which I can say, this is generally speaking what I want to try to sift my life through. The first one, I didn't know a fancy way to put it, so I just put it as clear as I can. And basically that is this. The point of our lives, the point of your life, the point of my life, the point is to point to him. The point of my life is to point to him. The platform of my life is to point to him. Verse 19, you see it. It says, I was there in service and in all humility. Now listen, let's be, let's be clear. In our culture, that is typically not the way that leaders talk. People that have accomplished a lot usually don't talk about being a servant. They don't talk about serving in humility. They talk about accomplishments. They talk about awards. They talk about ROI. They talk about this is what I've done. This is my resume. That's who I am. These are my achievements. But he says, I serve there. The word serving is the verb form of the noun, doulos, which means slave. The Apostle Paul often would open up letters like the book of Romans. He would open it up and he would say, I am Paul. And instead of saying, I'm Paul, it speaks a bunch of languages. I'm Paul that 
met Jesus on the road to Damascus. I'm Paul. It's planted a ton of churches. He would say, I'm Paul, servant of Jesus Christ. Doulos, the lowest of the low. I am a servant of Jesus Christ. That's the way he saw himself. That's the way he introduced himself. That's who he was. Now, those of you that are like type A, choleric, eight on the Enneagram, all that kind of stuff, drivers, shakers, you know what? I got to push. I got to push. Paul was all that and more. Paul was all that and more, but bottom line, he knew All right, behind the platform, behind the preaching, behind the church planting, he understood when I look in the mirror, I'm first and foremost a servant of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that? Because what it's going to lend to is he says, I'm going to serve you in all humility. Now, what's interesting is the word humility there in secular Greek was used as an insult. If you were to say, you're humble, that would be an insult. You're like, you're low, you're low, you're low. The New Testament takes it and uses it 200 times and doesn't use it as an insult, but uses it as a compliment, uses it as an exhortation, even to say for you and I to humble ourselves. Now, the word humility there means from the earth or from the dirt. When you and I see somebody that's humble, we're like, man, you know what? He's a down-to-earth guy. He's a down-to-earth guy. The opposite of a down-to-earth guy is like a puffed-up guy, fancy guy. He's all puffed up. If you see a lady and she's She's humble. She's not about, she's like, when I, she, she's down to earth. She's down to earth. She's not puffed up. That's the word he's using. It says, I served you and I served you in humility. Now, why would that, what was used in secular language as an insult, now be used as a compliment in the Christian life? Here's why. Because when it comes to a Christian wanting to make a difference, when it comes to Christian ministry, it's not about the awesome power of the men and women of God. It's not about you making a difference with your amazing, awesome talent and skill. It's about a great savior who can save and use the most broken, messed up, dysfunctional people and make a difference with them. All right, let me just, uh, somebody after the first service, like, I don't watch movies, so I don't understand some of your illustrations. Well, either I need to be more clear or you need to watch more movies. I'm not sure which one. So I will just say this. There's a movie called The Incredibles. There was a movie that came out a while back called The Incredibles, okay? The Incredibles, pretty good movie. It's not up there near Lion King, and it's not a Denzel Washington film, but it is still pretty good, okay? But in The Incredibles, there's a superhero dad in the movie. And the superhero dad, he's tired of his desk job. I don't remember what he does. I think he maybe sells insurance or something, but he knows, he knows, like, that's not the real me. And so what he does, he starts doodling on a pad and he starts doodling all these superhero costumes, all these superhero uh, costumes that he wants to go back and wear, and that's who I'm meant to be. But the outfits that he would draw would all have capes on them because that's how most of the superheroes would dress and he wants to be the same as them. All right? That one of his friends, and her name is Edna, Edna's the one that makes the superhero costumes. And she's trying to talk him out of having a cape. She's like, capes, capes are gone. You don't want a cape. Capes cause you trouble. You can't be the superhero you want to be with a cape on. As a matter of fact, she starts talking about all the bad things that happen when superheroes wear capes. Like, you know, like a dog will get it or it'll get sucked into a jet engine and, and take you away. And her, 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 the best line of the movie is like, no capes, no capes, no capes. It's like, that is an awesome thought for the Christian who wants to make a difference. You know what? You make a difference not by showing the cape that you have, like I got all my stuff together and my marriage is perfect and my church is perfect and my life is perfect and my kids are perfect. People are not impressed with what they know is not true anyway, loved ones. They know you're not perfect. They're not looking for perfection. They are looking for authenticity, okay? Authentically saying, you know what? I I don't have it all together, but I know who has it all together, and he is doing some great work in me. 
Now, I'm not saying that he doesn't change us. He's always changing us over and over and over and over. He's changing us. He's changing us. But the aim for you to try to make a difference with your talent, with all that stuff, is not to impress people with your Christ-likeness. It's to impress people with Jesus. And a lot of times that that happens is not when things are going awesome with you. This is the bad news. Some preachers today, prosperity preachers, will look at this text and say, Paul didn't believe enough because he had all these trials and afflictions and God was going to put him under that and he didn't believe enough. That's not true. This is like the best of the best. And he says, I'm convinced because God has shown me that I'm going to afflictions await me. And earlier he says, I've got tears and trials and that's how I served you. Now tears and trials, there's no way to look. Trials are difficult situations. Tears are the idea linked to that. It's like, it was so painful. I was like tearful. It hurt so bad. Now, loved ones, here's the, here's the fallacy that we sometimes believe. In our culture, we believe that people watching you as a Christ follower, they're, they're impressed when God blesses you. And there is an, there's a truth to that. When you see the athlete who catches the winning pass in the Super Bowl, it's like, hey, glory to God, glory to God, and bless God. You know, it's like, hey, okay, that's pretty good. He caught the touchdown pass, he gives glory to God. Or, you know, they win the lottery, and it's like, hey, well, glory to God, I won a million dollars in the lottery. It's like, well, bless God. Or you like, hey, you, you have a beautiful baby, and it's a miracle baby, because they said you couldn't have a baby at all, or the baby was sick, and look at this, I got a beautiful baby bouncing boy, and we think people are impressed when we give glory to God, and there's some truth to that. But I would say what makes a watching world stand up and take notice is not when we give God praise and give God credit when things are going awesome. It's when we actually believe that there's a God who gives joy and peace and victory in the midst of when all hell breaks loose in your life, okay? It's when that miscarriage comes. It's when you go broke and the company goes flat. It's when your marriage falls apart and you still believe God is good and you still believe and you say, yes, I will, I will, I will. I praise him and I still believe in him. That's when they stand up and go, man, there's something distinctly different about you. I didn't even know this story till this week, even though we've got a pretty close relationship with New Spring Church down in South Carolina. And uh, obviously you've got several people down there. You know, Clayton's here. Uh, he'll be here, I think, in July to preach. And November, again, I'm Dan Liam's going to be here as well. They're both the, two of the three teaching pastors down there. Brad Cooper, the third teaching pastor. He's been doing some student stuff for us before. Love the trajectory over the last couple of years of that church, all doing some great things for God. But I didn't even hear this story till this week. But several years ago, one of their pastors, uh, I believe it was one of their student pastors, outside of uh, Decula, Georgia, I think I'm pronouncing that right, I was, I was reading the, the, the write-up on it. One of their student pastors, his wife, and un, she was pregnant and was driving, and there was an EMT driver who had just gotten off, he'd been up for 24 hours and crossed over the line, crossed over the median, slammed headfirst into this pastor's wife and she, I think the baby was there too. So the unborn child died, the wife died, the other child lived. And this whole report that came up and it made the AP and it made the morning shows and all this kind of stuff, the EMT, as he fell asleep at the wheel, hit him head on, killed the wife and the unborn child. The guy was, again, being irresponsible, worked a 24-hour shift, shouldn't have been driving, all that stuff. It takes about two years for all the facts to come together to get all this investigation done. But after two years, the sentencing is about to take place, and this guy was going to get a harsh charge. He was facing felony charges. The pastor, the husband, shows up at the guy's sentencing and pleads to the judge for the judge to give him a more lenient sentence 
than what the judge was going to do. Amazingly, the judge listened to him. I think he got community service and some other things. That began a friendship that lasted eight years where now they meet. I think they meet at Waffle House like every other week to disciple the guys, become part of the guy's family. The story gets picked up by the AP and some of the other news programs, and the pastor was asked, why? Why would you show up to a person who took your wife, took your unborn child because of his negligence? And here's what he said. He said, this is what Jesus did for me. After I wronged him, he brought me close, and it just makes sense that I do this for other people. It's like, good gracious, is the gospel demonstrated any clearer than when a person who much harm has been done to freely forgives and says, you know what, God, is, God treated me this way. I treated God wrong and God forgave me. Somebody treats me wrong and so I am gonna demonstrate the gospel to somebody else by that. Folks, just understand, maybe your life is difficult right now and I would say everything you think feels like a struggle. God has allowed some hard things in your life so you can show the world that your God is great, awesome, and knowing him brings peace and joy even when life is hard. You're like, you know what? It's a great time for me. It's awesome. The sky is blue and there are no clouds in sight. That's awesome too. Don't feel guilty about having a great season in life right now. You show the world that somebody can be amazingly blessed and still remember Jesus and love Jesus and be generous with others and not forget where it came from. Why? Because the gospel is just humbling. You know, I didn't know this till this week, all right? I didn't know this till this week. I thought, man, I've had seven years of theological schooling and I never knew this, all right? Okay, before Paul was Paul, Paul was Saul. Now, I knew that, okay? I'm not that dumb. Okay, I knew that. I knew that part, okay? So you got Paul, who's right. Then you got Saul. That was his name before he came to Jesus in Acts 9. But when you think, the word Saul was from the first king of Israel, King Saul. If you remember the story, King Saul was like the, the handsomest, the tallest. He looked great, and he was like the tall guy. He was the big stuff. Paul... The word Paul means small. And what a picture. You got Saul, who is big, big stuff. I'm, really, I'm the big guy. And then when he comes to Christ, he's now Paul, and Paul means small. So I guess the question you've got to ask is, are you trying to be like awesome Saul, or are you content with being like small Paul? That's the question you got to ask. Do you want it to be about, hey, this is me, it's me, it's, I'm building my, you talk about a counterculture deal when the whole thing is about Twitter followers and Instagram likes and all of those things, and nothing's wrong with those necessarily. But what Paul's saying, it's not about me. The point is to point to him. And so uh, you're like, well, what else? I got, I got something. I kind of want to do that, but what else is about it? I'm just going to throw by this one really quick. But uh, this is going <laughs> to, it's not just a point to him, but I, I really felt bad at this because I'm having to use a, I used a phrase that's, I would just call him, what would I call him? I would call him Satan's coach, maybe, uh, um, about do your job. You know where that comes from? You know where that comes from? Okay. Some of you are like, I know where that comes from. That comes from a coach of the New England Patriots, which are known as Satan's team. Okay, Satan's team. Really? I mean, seriously, it's like rooting for the Death Star. I mean, really? And you're right. Okay, so, okay, true. It is true. It is, that is true. That is true. Um, Except this week, I saw where Benj our friend Benjamin Watson, we've done a video with him, he signed with the Patriots, which means he's now a missionary to hell. That's really what that means. Man, so pray for Benjamin, pray for Benjamin. All right, so pray. So, hey, but to give him his credit, I looked up because I knew where it came from because I'm gonna show you this is what Paul's saying. It's like, do your job, do your job. And that, was, that came from Belichick. 
Belichick says his secret sauce for every team he ever coaches is four things. It's plastered on the wall every time they go out to practice, every time they go out to a home game. There are these four things that are plastered up there. Number four is uh, put the team first. Number three is pay attention to detail. Number two is be attentive. And number one is do your job. Do your job. You're like, where's that in the text? Well, let me show you. Verse 24. But I do not account my life, and he gets very personal here, of any value nor as precious to myself if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus, what does that entail generally? It's to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't have time to unpack this, but listen to me for just a second. The apostle Paul had a specific ministry. In his case, although it it changed a little bit, he started off talking to Jews and Gentiles. Generally speaking, the trajectory of his whole life after he came to Jesus was to be a minister to the Gentiles. That's the non-Jew. That's like 98% of us in here are basically a Gentile. That was his ministry. So he went to Gentile areas and he spread the gospel. He planted churches and he wrote epistles, all that kind of stuff. That was what he was about. That's probably not what you were about. But the general question you've got to ask is, not just what is God's will for me, but when you sit there and take account of your life, and it's like, okay, what's the job God has for me? And when I ask the question, what does God have for me? What's God's purpose for me? Ask the bigger question, and what is God's purpose, period. Before you say, what's God's will for me? Ask what God's will is, period. And so whether you're a plumber or a preacher or a teacher, you can understand, okay, my general job then is to testify the fact that God is gracious and how do I get God's grace to the people around me? Here's something that's very sobering. You are not responsible to save the world. You are not responsible to save the world, okay? You and I are responsible, though, for the people God puts around us in our immediate spheres of influence. You and I are responsible for this generation, It's not exactly like Peter had it, not exactly like Barnabas had it, but God has got a ministry for you to make a difference. Somewhere in there, you've got to ask the question, how is my life, how is my job, how is my family, how is my whatever, how is that actually going to testify to the grace of God to those around me? Again, we've talked about this at length, but let me just get a couple of high points real quick. The emphasis here is the gospel of the grace of God. That is the distinguishing mark in Paul's mind of the gospel. People talk about sometimes all religions are the same. You've probably had that thrown at you. You know, bottom line, it's just every religion's the same. Just be nice, and here's the overlap. And bottom line, just kind of be sincere. All religions are not the same at all. And it's not even in the little particulars. Every other religion but Christianity in some way, shape, or form is do these things and God will accept you. Do these things, all right? Do these works. Make this trip. Do these, follow these laws. Then God will accept you. Christianity turns that completely opposite on his head and it says Jesus has obeyed the law perfectly. He has done it perfectly and you don't change to try to get God to accept you. The fact that God accepts you in Jesus motivates you then to live your life as a doxology back to him. That's completely different. So here's the question. When you look at just your life, just the big picture life, you wanna ask the question, how is God gonna use whatever place he's put me to testify of the grace of God. And I know you want to. I mean, I think deep down, if you're a legitimate Christ follower, it is so very hard. I know you've got burdens. I know you've got people you love. I know you've got people that you don't even really like that much, but you know, deep down, you're like, I really hope they would know the gospel and God would change them. 
what you've got to ask the question is like, how much do I want to see that happen? If there was a, uh, this is like every, every zombie movie ever, but it's actually in some ways, it's got a real life point to it. Think about what if a deadly disease broke out in Western North Carolina, or let's just say in this service, let's just say somewhere in a, most, most of you came from, let's just say a 15 mile radius. What if a deadly disease broke out in this 15 mile radius? People had 24 hours to live. When they get it, they got 24. And somehow amazingly, you're like Will Smith and I am legend, okay? You get the cure, you have it. I mean, what would you not do to get the cure out to people who actually have the disease and have got 24 hours to live? Now here's what you've gotta ask yourself. Do I really believe the gospel? What I fear is there is a lot of closet universalism, even in Bible teaching churches. We don't really want to think, and you've at some points you've got to ask the question, do I believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ? Do I believe that heaven is real, that hell is real, that Jesus paid the sin debt of the world, and there's nothing that somebody can do where God cannot reach them? Do I really, really believe that? It used to be, it's like, oh, a bunch of liberals, they're not, they're, they're universalists. What has happened is even now in Bible church, it's like, I'm not really sure I believe that enough to embarrass myself. What you've got to ask yourself the question is, if I believe that, if I believe that, what has Jesus called me to do? What has he called me to do, to do my job? I'll give you three quick ways. One of them, and I don't know any way, better way to put it than where our, our friend over in the Summit Church, J.D. Greer, says it, but you've got to look at your job differently. A lot of you have jobs, and it's secular jobs, and those jobs are great. It can be very God-honoring. He puts it in the best way I've heard, and the way he puts it is he says, whatever you do, do it well for the glory of God and do it strategically for the mission of God. Man, what a great thing to kind of just think about real quickly. You're a lawyer. Hey, let's not take a lawyer. That'd be hard to glorify God in that. Let's, uh, let's uh, I'm sure I'm going to get a letter. It'll be legal. Okay, but just... Um, Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God and then do it strategically for the mission of God. You're like, what do you mean strategically? Intentionally is another way to put that. I'll give you an easy example. That London church plant that we're kind of coming alongside Summit Church and helping plant in London next year. Three weeks ago or four weeks ago when we announced that whole thing, there was a, a lady in our church that came up and said, hey, my job right now, my company is giving me a choice. I can either go and take a new job in London or I can take a new job and I can't remember where else she said, you know, uh, Paris or something. She says, you know what, what I'm thinking is maybe God's in the fact that, all right, I can pick between Paris and London and there's not really much difference between the two jobs. I think I'm gonna pick London so I can help us start a church plant. You know what? That is thinking strategically about the mission of God. Now, loved ones, you don't have to get on a plane you don't have to take a job over there. You might be staying right here. Help us reach your neighbors, your coworkers, disciple and equip. But it just means you're intentional. Intentional. I mean, I could give you 50 different ways. There's a doctor in the first service. He has eighth grade boys over to his house uh, for Bible study on Sunday nights. He just brings them over. Is that because he doesn't have anything else to do? No, he's got a bunch to do. He's got a family himself. He's like, but you know what? I got, I got, I got a burden that the next generation understands how to study the Bible, so he gives up his Sunday nights. But for you, it's like, okay, what do I do? I do it well for the glory of God. I do it well for the glory of God, and I do it strategically for the mission of God. Great way just to look at life. And you're like, what else can I do? What else can I do? I want to point to him. I want to glorify God in my job as a teacher. What else am I going to do? This is kind of where we're going to land the plane today. 20, verse 33 and 35, he says, I coveted no one's silver, gold, or apparel in all things. 
I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak. Can't tell you how many scriptures when you look at it, talk about a measure of your spiritual growth and my spiritual growth is will I help those people who can never pay me back? You understand that? When we help people who can pay us back, either immediately or eventually, Jesus actually says, that's not much better than those that don't even follow me. But here he says, you must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, which ironically, Paul takes a passage that you don't find in the Gospels, but apparently was so well known that the early Christians knew it by memory. And here's what it was. Remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now let's unpack that for a second. Some of his last words were how spiritually prosperous it would be for a person who valued giving above taking, contributing above consuming. Obviously, Jesus' example A, Matthew 20, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So what did he do? He took your guilt. He took your shame. What did he give you? He gave you his righteousness. That is the gospel. It's a personification of that. You're like, oh, how am I going to be blessed? Now, I understand giving and receiving and blessing. Some of you are like, oh, you're talking about money. That's an aspect of it, but it can, it can work anywhere. I mean, what marriage in here would not be better is if either spouse is like, you know what? My goal for the next four days is to be all about giving and not taking. I mean, what marriage would not be like? I mean, I know some of us guys are gonna be better at that today because it's Mother's Day, okay? And you're gonna like be awesome. Where do you wanna eat and what do you wanna do and all that? What if you did that with your friends? You'd have more friends than you know what to do with if you're like, I wanna help you. It's about you, it's about you. We used to do a... Uh, when I was a kid, and then when we had kids, and bless God, we're empty nesters, but here's, here's, here's what we used to do. Hey, just don't underestimate empty nesting, bud. Okay, so I'm just saying don't underestimate it. So here. Okay, I'm just, uh, that's not even a point. It's just saying, saying don't underestimate. When you have kids, or if you have kids, or if you know kids, or if you have grandkids, what you'll do is you have growth markers. And a lot of people do this on, like in the pantry, and I think probably now you have like erasable markers, but back then, man, back, back in the day, we would like use like these marks or even like whittle into the pantry and stuff. And so you're like, oh, here I am at seven years old. And then like six months later, you've grown a couple inches and you're like, here I am. And you're growing and you're growing. And it really shows us like, man, I'm getting bigger and bigger. And it's really disappointing. I remember Lori's brother, Lori's brother, uh, Blaine, uh, he, he was a college ball player and he, uh, uh, he was, he hit like six feet and he would wear these shoes that would hang upside, he would hang upside down. He would hang upside down in these shoes to stretch his bone structure. Cause he's like, man, if I could just, he was, he's like a six foot guard. If I could only get to six, three, then it would be awesome. He wanted to grow so bad and we all do. And so when you see those marks, you're like, here he is at seven, here he is at eight, here he is at nine years old. And it's grow. If you got babies and the babies aren't growing, you get worried. You're like, man, the baby should be growing quicker. The baby's not growing like they're supposed to. All the doctors come in. The baby's not growing. The baby's not growing. The baby's not growing. It's like something's wrong. And I would say this. You might be a Christian for like eight, nine, ten years. If you've not ever grown, a key barometer of your Christian growth is not just what kind of Bible fathead you are. Do you serve as a deacon or are you a pastor? You've been a member here 150 years. That's not the indicator of growth. One of the biggest indicators of growth is this. Do I actually love people who cannot pay me back? 
Do I actually minister to people who can never repay me? Bible's full of this. Psalm 41, blessed is the one who considers the poor. On the day of trouble, the Lord will deliver him. 1 John 3, if you have the world's good and you see your brother in need and you close your heart, how does the love of God even abide in you? Second command, second biggest command. What's the biggest thing, Jesus? Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. What does that mean? That means you're gonna look at some pictures here in a few minutes and you don't, want, you don't wanna look away. You're gonna wanna look away, but don't look away. You wanna love that little child on the screen just like you'd want somebody to love your grandchild. When you see a widow on the screen, you don't wanna turn away. You want somebody to love that widow just, he wants you to love that widow just like you would want somebody to love you if you were a widow. And so here's what I would say. Uh, our partnership with the group Compassion International began several years ago and you guys have stepped up amazingly. We went with them about three and a half years ago. It's like, how do we help in child poverty and plant churches at the same time? Because we're about, we wanna plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. We see that in the New Testament as a key way to evangelize the nations and how do we do that? And so they came along and really kind of retrofit something they'd been doing just in a couple of other churches with us and so here's what's happened over the last few years. Um, you all have sponsored over 2,500 children. That's over a million dollars a year you're doing. I don't, okay, here's our deal. Don't applaud. This is just give glory to God, but don't applaud on this. I want to just give you some information. 2,500 children, million dollars plus a year. You can actually sponsor a child in Compassion International, $38 a month. $38 a month will take care of their physical well-being, their educational well-being, their emotional well-being, and the gospel not only will be shared with that child, but also be shared with that family. Over the last couple of years, we've been able to build three CDCs, Child Development Centers. Child Development Centers, it, it, it acts as a church, and it also acts as a child development center where the kids come and they get food and education and training because you're trying to break the cycle of poverty in Jesus' name. Glory to God, there's two that are right on the cusp of being built as well because some of you, including a couple of connect groups, are like, man, we can do this. Each of those CDCs cost about 100 grand. I know that's not small change. That's huge change to a lot of us. I would say that's, that's not big change to a lot of you. There's some businessmen and businesswomen in here. God's blessed you tenfold over that. You could today actually say, well, I can build one all by myself. But I just thank God for, there's some connect groups again that says, we'll build one, we'll build one, we'll build one. Here's what our challenge is today. And by the way, each CDC is another 200 children we wanna sponsor. Here's our challenge today, church. Our challenge today is, and I know this service, this is 11 o'clock, the early one's the one that goes to the other campuses and stuff like that, okay? I'll just put a little, I'll put the marker out here. The first service in this one, the first service here, we held some, we had to hold some back for this service because they, they took them all. They took them all. That's awesome. We'll find, we have other ones, but here's what's gonna happen. We need 750 children to be sponsored today. 750 children. 750 people to say, you know what? I will sponsor, I will sponsor a compassion child I will, I will provide for somebody that cannot provide for themselves. Just so you know, where we work, where we work as a church is in the jungle region. It's the poorest area, Tenna, Archinoda, Archidona, excuse me, Okoka. We're uh, trying to work in a couple of other areas as well. In the areas that we're in, some of the more impoverished families live on three to five dollars a day when they can find work. The typical home the typical home in the areas where we work, they're wooden huts. They usually have somewhere, it's like one of our small bedrooms, okay? 
It's like usually 100 feet, 100 square feet to 300 square feet. I would say I, when I was over there, I saw places smaller than that. And I'm not trying to be crass in here. I saw places that people lived in that a lot of us in here would be uncomfortable allowing our pet to stay in. And you're like, are you trying to make us feel bad? I don't want you to feel bad. And I don't even want us to feel guilty. We don't need to feel bad. We don't need to feel guilty. We do need to feel responsible. We do need to feel responsible. To whom much is given, much is required. God has blessed us all with a lot more than 3 to $5 a day. And so uh, when it comes to this, when it comes to Ecuador and compassion, what the word's saying is love your neighbors yourself. God wants you to love as you would want to be loved if that was your child, if that was the shack that your grandchild lived in. Here in a few minutes, I'm gonna ask you again not to, not to leave at all. Uh, we kind of front-loaded the front part of the service so there would be time in the back. But let me just give you kind of, kind of two quick challenges. If I were to sit up here and say, hey, we have a plane reserved for you. It's gonna take you to another country. It's all paid for. You're gonna get on this plane. You're gonna be gone for three months. You're gonna make an enormous difference to an amazing group of people. People have been made in the image of God. The gospel is going to be shared with them. You're going to put food on their table. You're going to educate them so they can then get a job. You're going to do that, and your work is going to stay. They're saying, go away for three months. Your school says you can take three months off. A lot of you would go, man, sign me up. I'm there. But what I'm going to tell you is today you don't have to get up on a plane. You don't have to get up and go on a plane. You don't have to get up and go to the airport. What I'm going to ask you to do is get up from your seat and go to a table and say, you know what, I'm going to commit. It might even take a little bit of sacrifice. 38 bucks a month. Man, a family of four, you can't even go out to eat for that. And so here's, here's what it is. I want to leave you two thoughts. Uh, first of all, some of you need to start. We have like 1,500 new members since we've done this. Two years ago, there's like 1,500 of y'all are new. And you need to start. This is one of our key partnerships. All you need to do is you're going to, I'm going to give you specific instructions in a second. Just start. You will be blessed. You're like, how's God going to bless me? I don't know, but it's going to be good. Okay. Your blessing might be the fact that your child sees you actually supporting another child and all of a sudden that materialism grip that is on them about every Nintendo game and everything that comes over. And you're like, what, we're giving up something for somebody else? Maybe it's that blessing. Maybe it's the fact that you and your spouse are just living independent lives and all of a sudden you have a child that you're actually writing to occasionally and talking about and praying for and your marriage gets stronger. Maybe it is the fact that you're struggling financially. You think God's out of money? God's not out of money. I'm saying God's looking to see you and I. How are we stewarding it? So uh, maybe you start. Maybe you uh, add. I know I'm looking at some church members, and you've already got a compassion child, okay? Lori and I, we sponsor three. And I'm not saying that to brag. I'm saying that actually to set up this joke because we're sitting there Thursday. We're sitting there at Papa's and Beer on Thursday. Uh, Thursday is the day I try to get everything done so I can take most of Friday off. So Thursday, I'm still thinking church. So Thursday, we're at dinner, and we're kind of going over. I'm still trying to kind of detox from church a little bit and, and from what I'm thinking about, and she's wanting to talk about life. But just, I promise you, this is the way it came out. I didn't mean it to come out this way, but we're just talking. About, we're not even talking about this weekend. We're just talking and talking, and I look at her and say, hey, do you want to have another child? She's like, man, my wife is like, what? 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 I'm like, compassion child, compassion child. But I've never seen her. It's like, yes, we will have another compassion child. And I would say that's for you. If you're like, hey, I want another compassion child. Um, here's, here's the way we're going to do it. And um, I'll try to be as specific as we can. But think about this one thought. 
Because a lot of us are like, man, you see these commercials and you see the video and you're like, I wish I could just, you know, end world hunger and I wish I could just, you know, change a country. And here's here's what you got to remember. If you want to make a difference, do for one what you wish you could do for everyone. Do for one. You can't, you can't do it to everyone, but you can do it to one. And so do for one what you wish you could do for everybody. 